You can turn once again in your Bibles to 1 Kings, concluding our series in the life of Solomon this evening with 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, Sadly, it's not a joyous conclusion, but uh, a conclusion that presents us with a warning. And And the Lord's timing and providence is wonderful. You might notice there's a lot of similar themes to what the Lord spoke to us in His Word this morning. Uh, a word of warning. We, we often get words of encouragement, which are wonderful, and even in the warnings, there can be a, an aspect of encouragement, but we have to receive everything that God would tell us, the encouragements, the admonitions, uh, the exhortations, and the warnings as well. First Kings chapter 11, we'll be looking particularly at verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods." And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Amen. Our text this evening presents us with really an historic downfall. King Solomon, this wisest of the kings of the earth, this richest of the kings of the earth, one whom God had audibly appeared to two different times, his heart slips away from the living God. He backslides tremendously. And even today, we hear, it seems, every couple months of some new Christian leader who has also similarly fallen, fallen into some scandal into some sin, but none of these are as shocking as Solomon's fall. Solomon, he was gifted with discernment from the Lord, and yet 
he fell. And if one is wise and as capable as Solomon could fall away from the Lord, have a heart that backslides, so can you and I. And so this text is a warning for us tonight, an instruction that warns us about falling away, having a heart that slowly slips away from the Lord. Now, King Solomon's primary sin in this passage is the sin of idolatry. And idolatry is a pernicious sin in the Old Testament that plagues the people of Israel for ages. And speaking of sin, uh, the sin of idolatry, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, tells them, and thus tells us, what we should do when we read about idolatry in the Old Testament. So he speaks of how God's people were idolatrous in 1 Corinthians 10, and how God disciplined them, like we see God does to Solomon. And this is what he says of this, that these things, okay, this idolatry and punishment, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man." Solomon fell to common temptations, things that plague our hearts in every generation. We sung this morning and heard that our hearts are prone to wander, and we feel it. And we need to watch diligently over our hearts, that our grasp on the living God not slip away. So the sermon's entitled, Watch Out, because we need to be watching carefully over our hearts And we learn from Solomon's example. We're instructed by what happened to him. The Lord has intended this to teach and instruct us. And so as we consider Solomon's downfall, we're going to look at what happened, then try to look at how it happened, and lastly, the consequences of it happening. Take a look at verse 4. What happened? This is a good summary statement here in verse 4. It says, When Solomon was old, Notice, this isn't a lifelong pattern for him. This is a falling away when he's reaching um, his old age. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. The first thing we want to notice here is that Solomon's downfall is ultimately a matter of his heart. Five times in this passage, it mentions something about Solomon's heart turning, his heart not being true to the Lord. And even though the external manifestation was this idolatry, this was coming from a turning of the heart. Because what's true is that our external sins, they don't just erupt spontaneously out of nowhere, but they come from within. They come from our hearts. Solomon's heart turned after other gods. Verse 4 says his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. So what's the picture here? Think of three components, okay? We have God on the one side, the true God. We have these false gods and idols on the other side, and the heart in the middle. And the heart points one way or the other. The area pointing in loyalty and faithfulness to one or the other. And it can move. It can turn away from God to the false gods. Kind of like if you have a vehicle that still has the knobs for heat, you know it has the blue, and then it goes, and then the blue keeps going, and then the red starts, and you have the red. And so there's a point at which you're just getting the heat, a point at which just the cold, 
But as you turn it, there starts to be a mixture. And this is what's happening to Solomon's heart. It was once wholly true to the Lord. And though not completely leaving the Lord, it says it was not wholly true. But he starts introducing other loves, other allegiances into his heart. His heart is dialing away from the Lord. The issue here is a heart of exclusive allegiance to God. That's the idea here. In issues of faith, religion, and worship, God requires exclusive allegiance. No other gods were to have any of the worship or service of God's people. And you see, at this time, this is a very unique thing in Israel. Most of the other nations had some form of polytheism. They worshipped a bunch of different gods, maybe one central god, but religion was a matter of what god will do the most for me today. So if you want um, good crops, maybe sacrifice to this god. You want to overtake an enemy, maybe sacrifice to this god. You allow your heart to go and serve whatever god is most convenient. But this was not the way that god would have his people worship him. Why? God demanded exclusive allegiance because the confession is that he is the one true god. All these other so-called gods are just idols. They're either lesser celestial beings vying for power or just the imaginations of men. And the call is to worship the creator and not these lesser creatures. The hearts of the people of Israel were to be true to Jehovah, to Yahweh, their God. They were called to worship him. A loyal heart, a heart loyal to God. Uh, we, we can see, we know this idea of heart loyalty in different spheres. We think of it in marriage, but uh, if you're not married, I thought of another way to think about it, as um, a lot of you are loyal to a particular sports team, right? I, I know that apparently college football is a thing here, not, not where I'm from, but many of you have an allegiance to a team, and whether they're doing really good or doing really bad, they are who you cheer for no matter what. Even if they've been terrible for years, you stay loyal because your heart is with them. You cheer, you cry, you give yourself. As opposed to a disloyal or a fickle heart. And I must confess, and I, I'll talk about hockey for a minute because I'm Canadian, but I was not very loyal to our team, the Vancouver Canucks. Because you see, when I was growing up, the Canucks were really bad. They were a terrible team. And so there was no fun to cheer for them. So I decided to cheer for teams like the Colorado Avalanche or the Detroit Red Wings, which is, uh, I think you guys might like, because they had uh, skill, they had the chance of winning. See, I just wanted my team to win. But then the Canucks got really good about 10 years later, and I became a huge fan. I was cheering them on as they went for the Stanley Cup which they lost, but then they got bad again. And now I don't even really care about following hockey anymore because my heart was not loyal. My heart was not in it whatsoever. And this was the picture of these ancient peoples whose hearts went after whatever God would be, give them the best chance of success. But they were called to be true to one God. This is something that is impressed them again and again, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, which we heard from this morning. Uh, look at what God says in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4. He tells the people of Israel, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commands and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Holding fast. That's a term of allegiance. The followers of Yahweh were to be in an exclusive covenantal relationship with him. 
like a marriage. It's for better or for worse. Whether they were being attacked by enemies, whether the crops were failing, they were to stay true to the Lord. And we learn, and the first point I want to take away is that this maintenance of a heart of exclusive covenant loyalty is of the essence of the religion we profess. A heart that is loyal and remains faithful to the one true and living God. And Solomon's downfall began with a slipping away of the heart, a disloyalty in the heart. And so if Solomon's heart could turn away, we must ask, how did this happen? What were the influences that drew away Solomon's heart? Right? Because our, our loves, the preferences and inclinations of our heart, they don't just change out of nowhere. Right? Think of any example where you've acquired a liking or love for something. Right? Maybe it's a certain band or music artist you really like. And where did that like, liking come from? Maybe it was a friend introduced you to them and you're like, okay, that's pretty good. And then maybe you're at a concert or you saw an opening band and you're like, wow, this is really interesting. And you start to um, have a heart more and more invested. Or maybe in food preferences. Um, I, I, for years, didn't really like coffee, but um, my parents drank it, and I knew it was a socially important task to learn to like coffee, and through the help of sugar and the help of mochas, I, I eventually grew to where I like actual coffee and was able to develop a, a love for this substance through various influences, right? It, it, our hearts change through influences, and Solomon's turning from God was not spontaneous, there was various temptations at work that were pulling his heart. There was temptations that were loosening his grip on God to the point where he would actually fall into idolatry and the worship of false gods. Uh, let's read of what the background to his falling away is in verses 1 to 3. Take a look. We're told that King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And this story of Solomon's downfall, it often gets uh, taught as like a lust problem, that Solomon just wanted to marry all these beautiful women because that's what he thought would be great. That's not really what's pointed at primarily. There's far more going on, more subtle and deceitful influences. And I want to point out three temptations Solomon succumbed to that I think we can learn from as well because these same influences also call out and tempt us. So let's consider firstly how Solomon fell prey to the temptation of worldly comfort and success. Verse 3 mentions that his 700 wives were princesses. Why would this text mention that they were princesses? Well, what this is pointing to is the fact that these were politically inclined marriages. At that time, if you wanted to shore up your trade deals, your economics, your military with foreign nations, you intermarried to, to give each other a stake. Hey, we're intermarried, we won't attack each other. 
And Israel's been under relentless attack through most of their history to this point. And so it makes sense that Solomon would want to shore up the nation, to make them economically successful with good trade deals, good military agreements. But in doing this, he disobeys God's clear commands. He wanted this national success so much that he went about it through his own means, his own wisdom, and that led him to this personal compromise. And similarly for us, one of the greatest temptations that allures our hearts to leave the Lord is the temptations of worldly comfort and worldly success. We, we want comfort, enjoyment, security, and safety, success, and we will pursue it by means that cause us to compromise what God has called us to. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. You can't serve God and mammon. And in the pursuit of a successful or a comfortable lifestyle, our hearts can be drawn away from the Lord. And there's many ways that we can notice this, but as we want to watch out for this in our hearts, I want to just bring up one test that we can use um, to discern perhaps whether our hearts are being drawn away. One of the most common things that happens when a heart is slipping into this love of worldly comfort and success is the neglect of God's worship, particularly the neglect of keeping God's fourth commandment to honor the Lord's day. And when worship is neglected for the sake of work or worship is neglected for the sake of leisure, that is a clear sign that these worldly things are gaining far too great a level in our own hearts. If you find yourself in the office or on the golf course instead of in God's worship, that is a, should be a red flag to you that the world is grabbing a hold of your heart. We too, like Solomon, are prone to compromising God's standards for the sake of some worldly success or prosperity or comfort. We have to watch our hearts, watch closely that these things aren't grabbing them. Secondly, a second temptation Solomon fell prey to was the temptation of intimate relationships. Verse 2 reminds us of God's command regarding the foreign nations when it says, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. He clung to them. That there is an allegiance word. Solomon united himself with an allegiance to these women that caused him to compromise his allegiance to God. And just as you cannot serve Christ as God and mammon, you also cannot serve God and sexuality. You can only go so long before it tears you away from God. And one of the signs, again, one of the clear signs of the heart being drawn away by these temptations of intimate relationships is sexual compromise. Compromising God's clear teachings in order to have this, to have this relationship. And in, in my own experience, whenever, when I was in youth group and um, as a young adult in the groups, whenever someone started dating an unbeliever, it was not long until they were long gone from the church. You see, when, when you know God's standards, and what he calls you to as a Christian, and yet you know you are walking in willful compromise to them, that's a tearing at your conscience. It's, it's, it's like you know God is pulling you on one side, but sin is pulling on the other, and you can only hang on to both for so long. 
Uh, boys and girls, I don't know if you guys have ever done that wishbone thing with the turkey or chicken, that special bone, and when it dries out, you, there's two sides, and you pull them. And the middle part, the special part, when it breaks, it will always go with one side or the other. And that's what it's like when God is pulling you and an unbelieving relationship is pulling. You will always end up going with one or the other because you can't hang on to both. You will either let go of God, but if you would hold on to God, you must let go of these things that would tear you away from your Christian confession. These allures of intimate relationships draw our hearts, and we need to be on guard. Whether our hearts are being drawn to any person, any sin that would pull us away from God, we must watch our hearts. But thirdly, Solomon fell prey to the temptation of cultural respectability. Look at verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. What's going on here? Solomon is accommodating the wicked worship practices of his foreign wives, right? Imagine the scenario. Solomon is supposed to only endorse the worship of Jehovah in the land, but these wives are coming in saying, I want to worship my God, and I want to worship my God, and Solomon, isn't that so intolerant that you want us to leave our culture and our heritage to come do your thing? Do you really think you have the exclusive claim on what's right here? And they nod at him, and maybe it's speculating a bit, but Solomon does cave in to this demand. He builds them temples so that they can keep worshiping. He accommodates, he compromises God's worship in order to appease these people who were all around him. And again, this is a temptation we can be fallen into as well. Because you see, our culture is telling us so many things. They say, what, what you believe is silly. Uh, it's dumb to hold that so exclusively. There could be many paths to God. Um, these practices you guys reject, how could you be so culturally dissensitive? You, why would you guys hold to such outdated modes of belief? But again, these are temptations at our heart that want us to compromise God's truth for the sake of cultural acceptability, cultural respectability. And the sign here is that you're willing to overturn the clear teachings of Scripture in order to appease people in the world. Whether it's overturning Scripture to appease the popular science, or overturning Scripture to appease popular social or political movements that would call you to endorse wickedness. As James 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot serve God and culture. We can never compromise biblical truth in order to try to find some respectability in the social standing. And so in all these three areas, in worldly success, in intimate relationships, in cultural respectability, these things draw our hearts. We have to be watching our hearts constantly that they not loosen their grip on the Lord because of these things. Because Solomon for all his wisdom, he did not watch close enough over his heart. He did not maintain his heart allegiance and exclusive devotion to the one true God. And if his heart could be drawn away, so can ours. And we need to consider what the consequences of this were. 
This wasn't, it's not that nothing happened because of this. Look at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Solomon's sin and disobedience justly provoked the righteous indignation of God. It was right for God to be angry against this destructive pattern of sin. And here's what the Lord says is the consequence. Verse 11, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. You see, Solomon's sin here would have drastic consequences for the entire nation. After this point, shortly after this, the entire country is put into a bloody civil war. And this civil war divides the nation for hundreds of years. They're always at constant warfare, enmity with each other, because of the consequences of the sin of this ruler, of the people. God warned Solomon of this, but Solomon's covenant breaking would affect the whole nation. And sin has consequences in our lives as well. And even for us who have our sins forgiven, often in our earthly lives, our sin will still have consequences that cause us to suffer. And this world has enough suffering in it already. Suffering is distributed in various ways, and we all have our own share. But why, by letting your heart go after these worldly things, why would you bring upon yourself more suffering than what there already is in the world? The way of the transgressor is hard, Solomon said in Proverbs, and he learned it. That sin, the, the temporary pleasures of sin, they turn to ash in your mouth. Sin has destructive consequences. And scripture also tells us of the eternal consequences of sin. That if you live a lifestyle of unrepentant, willful sin, then on that final day, it's not that the kingdom will be torn from you as it was Solomon, but you'll be torn out of Christ's kingdom. You'll be torn and cast into the place of utter destruction. That is a warning we need to heed and watch out for, because sin has consequences. However, even in this passage, God gives a glimmer of hope. Take a look at verse 12. God mitigates these consequences saying, yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. How amazing is this? For the sake of David, God would lighten the punishment to Solomon. That is, God would show a level of mercy to Solomon because David, his father, was faithful. And we know well enough that David was not perfectly faithful. David sinned and failed in numerous ways, but even with David's level of faithfulness, the Lord is willing to show mercy for the sake of an imperfect king. And if that is true, how, how much more should we be encouraged to seek out God's mercy for the sake of the true and perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the final son of David on his throne. And Jesus is the perfect king who never once wavered in his allegiance to the Father, who overcame every temptation that the devil put before him, who resisted even his own will that he might only do the will of the Father. Perfect covenant loyalty. And so, even though our hearts are wayward, even though our faithfulness is inconsistent, where our hearts go after worldly comforts, intimate relationships, we do look for cultural acceptance. Yet, for Christ's sake, we can find mercy. And so, when we put our trust in Christ's name, in his finished work, in his, um, then his perfect allegiance is taken as our perfect allegiance. His atoning death is accepted for our forgiveness. And his powerful resurrection is applied as the source of our new creation life. And then from renewed hearts, we can look forward to that final day when our hearts will no longer waver. When we will not not have one shred of unfaithfulness, but with unveiled faces, we will look to God in Christ and be able to say with 100% heart in it, the Lord is mine and I am his. I am fully the Lord's and he is fully mine. What an amazing thing that will be. And so where does that leave us today? I want to end with a fourfold exhortation as we consider this text. First, let us this evening renew our heart's allegiance to Jesus Christ. Let us consecrate ourselves completely to his service, renewing our baptismal and confessional vows to follow him with all our heart and soul. Okay, let's consecrate ourselves anew to Christ. Second, let us cast aside every rival love, everything that tempts us glimmeringly to draw our hearts after it, anything that would rival Christ, whether worldly comforts or successes, relationships, pleasures, doubts, or compromises. Let's repent for these idolatries and pray, asking that that God would search us and know us and see if there is any wicked, idolatrous way in us. Let us search our hearts. Thirdly, let us practice the discipline of watchfulness. Watchfulness. We need to keep a daily watch over our minds and our hearts, being ready to avoid and deny all incoming temptations, to nip sinful desires in the bud before they have time to flower in our lives, to stand guard over our hearts like a watchman on the wall who's ready to go into battle at the first sign of trouble. You're keeping alert. The first inclination of the heart, the first tempting thought in the mind, you're ready to bring it into subjection to Christ. Let's practice watchfulness. And lastly, let us look repeatedly and frequently to the cross of Christ where we find all our idolatries are purged, where mercy flows as a river, where all our failings are covered in a sea of grace. And all for the sake of our perfectly allegiant, kind and loving King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a King, that we get to serve under the banner of his name. Lord, we know that we've never lived perfectly, in loyalty and faithfulness to you, not even one day. 
And so we thank you, Lord, that you do forgive us and you see Christ's faithfulness over us when we trust in him, that we are covered in his robes of righteousness. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness, but we do pray for increasing spiritual strength, vitality, and vigor that we would live faithfully to you, that the loyalty and allegiance of our hearts would be given to no other, That no worldly temptation, no lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life would be able to loosen our grip on our exclusive, devoted obedience and worship to God in Christ by the Spirit. And we pray these things knowing you hear us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen.